During our Wednesday night meetings in the summer, we're studying the lives of great men and women of the past. And the reason for that is because by not reading biographies as we used to in the good old days, we have lost something of the significance of those who have gone before us in the Christian life. Uh, somehow we, we live in the moment, just the moment. And the moment is what consumes us so that we think in terms only of now and the next few moments, and then we see what are we to do as a result of that, and we try to do it. That's a simplistic way of putting it. But one of the things that the Jews are known for is history. History. They live by what took place yesteryears. <laughs> when I was in Israel, our guide said to, to us, jokingly, he said, uh, people from North America make a big deal if they find some kind of a finding that's about 500 years old. Says, we, we make a big thing about things that are 10,000 years old. <laughs> because it's important. And, and that part of the world, that part of the world, history never dies. So that when you read the scriptures, you will find places and people who have to do with life yesteryears, and not simply the moment. Psalm 32 is one of those psalms. It is the story of Solomon's prayer, which can be found in 1 Kings chapter 8, at the dedication of the temple that was being built for God's residence, if you please. However, I want you to understand that Solomon understood something because of understanding from his father David that God doesn't dwell in buildings. No building is big enough to contain God. But buildings are symbols of where people come to acknowledge the greatness of God. And so the temple is being dedicated. And Solomon is offering his prayer. And he begins his prayer by saying to God, Remember David. It's interesting if you go in a concordance and look at the word remember, you will see how many times it's mentioned. Old and New Testament, remember. You see, David had a dream that he wanted to build a house for God. We'll read that in a few minutes. And, and, and verses 1 to 10 tells us what he went through in preparation for that building. And God said to David, David, you can't build a house big enough to contain me. I am going to build a house for you where you can understand something of my greatness. And now the building is finished. The building is being dedicated. Now, I wasn't here, obviously, when this building was being dedicated. I think you had a dedication in Canada. We usually have the dedication of a building uh, that with big celebrations and meals and so on 
and I don't know whether you have that here or not. I haven't heard or not, but um, that could be. Uh, I remember the, the, the first time I came here and we were going to do something and I thought we were going to be doing something else. See, I thought I was back in Canada. <laughs> and, and you don't do things here like we do it in Canada. Uh, we have dedication service almost every year where we celebrate the, the ongoing ministry of, of a church and, 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 and so on and so on. But this is one of those days. The celebration was going on. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people. It was a time when, when, when the people would come up to Jerusalem to celebrate as they were, they were, they were remembering how God has been pleased to, with them. And now the reason Solomon is asking God to remember David is because in one ki two kings, uh, I'm sorry, two Samuel, God made promises to David that will be completed in a time to come beyond your existence and mine. The text that we're going to look at this morning is the first part of God's promise. Solomon was looking back and he was seeing how God kept his promise to his father and that he was going to be reigning and he wanted to make sure that he was experiencing from God the same faithfulness that his father experienced. You and I live at the completion of that, that, that praise and we look forward to the fulfillment of one, 132, Psalm 132, 11 to 18. So you and I are part of this psalm because God is going to finish what he promised to David in a time to come as he works in your life and mine. We shall see that. So what I want you to consider with me is what I call the reflection of a godly life. Remember David, O Lord. Solomon is rehearsing in his mind the faithfulness of David as one of God's choice servant that he used to bring about certain promises that David himself was going to experience. Like I said, Wednesday nights we're studying the lives of great men and women of the past. And, and this past week we were studying the life of George Mueller. Most of you have never heard of George Mueller. But you would be absolutely surprised to know that a man who lived in the 1800s affects our lives now as we're sitting in this building this morning. Because he showed us that just as Abraham lived and just as David lived, so George Mueller lived, and that's the way we are to live. I was telling the, the group Wednesday night, in his lifetime, he read the Bible over 200 times. 200 times. Not only sitting down and reading, but he was so consumed by the Word of God that it oozed out of him as he spoke. It, it, it was, it was the, the, the life that was governed by God's Word. And, and he was able to believe God in ways that you and I need to learn that even in a technological age, 
technology cannot provide for us what only God can. That's what he wants to see, and that's what we want to see with this psalm. So godly lives of the past affect our lives today. In verses 1 to 3, the reflection of a godly life. Remember David. What was the first thing that we learned from this psalm? That a godly life is not free from difficulties. A godly life is not free from difficulties. We, we, we live in an age where we want to make sure that everything is absolutely in order so that we are able to live so peacefully and so joyfully that nothing disrupt our plans, disrupt our lives. <laughs> you know, I was, I was thinking of, of that as I looked at my wife in, in the bed. Uh, you know, she was supposed to be out of the hospital by now. And there she is, still, still there. And I was, I was amused. The doctor came in the other day. I was there, and he was apologizing to Lois and just telling uh, her, Lois, I am so sorry. I did everything that I knew that I could do, and I thought I had it all corrected, and now I'm so sorry. And I, I, I'm just standing there watching him stew in his own juice <laughs> because God was in control. It was a difficulty. But my friends, listen to what is said of David. In 1 Samuel 13 and 14 and Acts 13, 22, David is called a man after God's own heart. But being a man after God's own heart did not prevent David from experiencing difficulties. We, we, we live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, things will happen that we do not plan. The NIV, by the way, has the word for affliction there. The NIV has the word hardship. Hardship. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen, listen, listen to the Paul, a man after God's own heart. Listen to what he says in verse 4. But as servants of God... We commend ourselves to every way, in every way, by great endurance, affliction, hardship, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. That's a man who was a chosen man of God. And my friends, please listen to me carefully. God's school for the man or the woman he wants to use, a part of the curriculum is hardship. A part of the curriculum, hardship. One of my favorite passages is found in, in 2 Samuel 16, where the cousin of Saul is walking on a hillside beside David. And he's cursing David. He's swearing at David. He's calling David all kinds of names. This is the man who was a man after God's own heart. This is the man that God had anointed to become king. And here is, here is someone 
that he could have destroyed easily because one of his servants came to him and said to David, do you want us to go and cut that dead dog heads off? I mean, he was ready to do it. And you know what David said? You don't know what you're talking about. What if God has sent him to teach me something through what he's doing? My friends, that's not the way I look at hardship. I can tell you that now. What if God had sent him And and listen to what David says. Maybe God is going to bless me in the light of the affliction that he has allowed to happen to me. A Christianity without difficulty, without the trial of our faith, without, my friends, coming to the place where sometimes we wonder If God really has forgotten how to be gracious, David went through that. And as Solomon is remembering his father, he's remembering something. That in spite of God's promises and covenants with David, it did not eliminate difficulties. Did not. G.K. Chesterton says that A religion free from calamities is not the religion of Christianity. Because Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been tried and found difficult and left untried. Oh, dear friends, I tell you, I wish I had something better to say to you this morning to begin the message by talking about the path of the cross is the path of difficulties. God is not absent when we're going through dark times. God is not indifferent when people curse us like they curse David. We have a God so absolutely sovereign that he can actually superintend over the difficulties we are going through and in them and through them bring us to the place in a life that we could never have experienced if he did not allow them. Remember Israel going from from Egypt to the promised land? There was a shortcut that would have done it in a couple of days. And God said, no, I'm going to take you through the path that will lead to you learning to trust me. The difficulty of a godly life are signs of God's school, God's curriculum to make that life. I always remember, I always remember Mrs. Ross as a young student working with migrant camps around Oregon. Mrs. Ross said to me at the end of my time working in the migrant camps teaching vacation Bible school, Mrs. Ross, as I would say goodbye to her going back to Canada, she said, Winston, I want to pray that God will use you mightily, but I'm afraid to pray it because I know that if God is going to use anyone mightily, he will have to hurt them deeply. That's what she said, like a prophetess. God, in the days of darkness and difficulty, put your hands 
in mine, and I will lead you through them, and I will make something beautiful out of your difficulties. <laughs> I, I, one afternoon, I walked into, the, into the, the, the room where my wife is, and I saw the nurse kneeling beside her bed listening to her story. And I thought, oh, honey, why are you doing that? The nurse has her work to do. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm walking by now, and I said something, and she said, oh, I just enjoy talking with her. Didn't say it about me, said I'm talking to her. And I thought, what if God allowed Lois to stay in the hospital room one more week to talk to this nurse? The difficulties through which God brings us are for his own glory and for our good. Secondly, the devotion of his father's life. The devotion. This, this verse stunned me as I, as I read it myself and studied it. And believe me, when I said it, it was a difficult text to deal with, it is. And he said, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. He swore to the Lord and vowed. To, to, to swear means that, that he, he was saying something to God without reservation. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for the word swear is the word seven. He sevened his life to God. You know why? Because seven in the Bible is the number of completion. And so when he said, I will swear to you, or, or as one translator has, I am sevening myself to you. He's saying, I am completely committed to you. I am holding back absolutely nothing. Archbishop William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1949, I, I, I have memorized what he wrote about worship he said, worship is the surrendering to God all our nature. It is to have our conscience quickened by His holiness. It is to have our mind nourished in His word. It is to have our imagination purified by His beauty. It is to have our hearts open to His love. It is to have our will submitted to His all these put together, all these, mind, imagination, conscience, everything surrendered to God. He was talking about his sevening himself to God. Now that's a new one for you this coming week. <laughs> when you, you want to, you know, it's interesting because you see, I had another title. Connie will tell you. I had another title for this message this morning. And the title that I had, I had to call and ask her to change it. The title I had, on a scale of 1 to 10. On a scale of 1 to 10. You see, what I wanted to ask was this. On a scale of 1 to 10, now I better say 1 to 7. <laughs> How would you rate your devotion to God? On a scale of 1 to 7. Can God make a demand upon your life, on my life, that 
we are completely devoted to Him. Not a hit and miss devotion. To behold back nothing from God and to vow then, to vow, is to make a promise. And the promise is according to what I am learning, what God is showing me in His Word. And I've become so devoted to Him that like Paul I can say, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall be ashamed in nothing, nothing, but with all boldness, Christ shall be magnified in my life, whether by life or by death, completely devoted to Jesus Christ. And friends, please, don't think that I'm saying this at you. I'm saying this to me. To me. Do I have a job here? Or am I devoted to Jesus Christ in obedience to feed the flock, to tend to the sheep? Devotion is what happens in relationship. What, what, I, what, I, what I begin to see in you that demands of me more of what I am. Devotion is a relational word. It has to do not with things, but with people. People. You know what has to do with things? Dedication. Dedication. See, see, that's what David said in verses 3 and 4 again. In the one, I make a vow, and I, I swore to God. But look now, look now. In the rest of the verse, here is what, here you will see his dedication by the sacrifice he's willing to make. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. I will forgo something that is absolutely essential to my own existence. Sleep. Sleep is not just something that happens. It is the design of God by which we are able to be refreshed and sometimes allowing God to show us things as he did Joseph. And what did he say? He said, I, I will dedicate my body to you. You have purchased me, says St. Paul. We are bought with a price. Therefore, what I do in this body will be consistent with my devotion to you. I promise you that I was going to be faithful to you. I promise you that I would surrender my being to you. And here is the proof of it. And, and this is where the rubber begins to meet the road. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, Matthew, well, in, in, in Luke, actually, Luke 14, Luke 14, 15 to 20, Jesus tells the story of three groups of people that he asked to follow him. And each one gave an excuse, each one. The first one said, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go and look at it. This is the excuse because of property. Property or business. The second one said, I have, I love this one, 
I have bought five yokes of oxen, and I am going to try them out. This is the excuse of possession. I have things that I want to do that I can't give time to you. The third one is the one that spoke to my heart, the family. I have married a wife and I cannot come. Please excuse me. Now, friends, neither property, possession, or family is wrong. Please hear me. I'm not saying that at all. I don't think that for one moment. But whenever the good becomes the ultimate, we begin to worship what God gives and not God. Whenever the good becomes the ultimate, we begin to worship what God gives and not God. And we cannot enjoy what God gives at the expense of God. And David, you see, we'll see later on. He said, the reason I want to dedicate myself and the reason I'm devoted to, 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 to God is because, we'll find out in a minute what it is. What's the reason for this kind of dedication and devotion? Let me quickly read. You might not know who David Livingston is. Some of you might. Great missionary to Africa. And in 1857, David Livingston was speaking at Cambridge University. And through his experience, he said this. For my own part... I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office as a missionary. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply a payback as a small part of a great debt owing to God? That is no, think, think of what sacrifice he made. And can it be called a sacrifice for God? If I surrender to God that which I cannot keep, to gain that which I cannot lose? The dedication, the devotion. Business is important, possession is important. The family is important, but it was interesting to me, and I'm going to tell you how God works. Warren didn't know what I was speaking on today, but from Psalm 43, he read, I will go to God, to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. God is the ultimate in my life. And out of enjoying God for who he is, I enjoy everything else that God has given. Everything else. Possession, family, and the likes. Let me quickly go to my second point. The resolution of a godly life. The resolution. Verses 4 to 10. Or, why did he make such a resolution that he won't give sleep to his eyes? He won't go to bed. He won't stay in his own house while... Listen, listen to verses 4 and 5. I will give no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol 
of God's presence with his people. The ark was to be the very center of the religious life of the Jews. But the ark had been out of place for 20 years, even going into the hands of the enemies of God. And David was, was moved by the fact that he lived in a beautiful cedar house and God's temple was made of moving parts. And he said, I'm going to build a house for God. I will not allow God to take second place in my life. If I can live in a cedar house, I'm going to build a temple for God. <laughs> Interesting story. And so, he said, I want God's ark to return to its place. Dear friends, may I say this with all, I trust, humble spirit, that when God doesn't mean much to us, we don't need to spend much for God. When he doesn't mean much to us, here is David the presence of God is absent. That which God said he was going to, to, to respond to. And in, in, instead, instead of the presence of God, we're languishing with a sense of religion without reality. We're going through the process, but there is no power. We're learning, but never come to the knowledge of the truth. David said, I want a place for God. I want God to return to his place in my life, in his house, so that he will once again become the center of my existence, the center of my purpose, the center of my resolution. That's what he's saying. I don't want the enemy to belittle God. I want the enemy to know how precious, how exceedingly precious Jesus Christ is to me. I want his presence back in the place where it belongs. On a scale of one to seven, friends, how important is worship to you? How important is the presence of God in our worship to you? To me, God said, I will dwell. David, if you obey me, I will dwell in your midst. And David wanted that symbolic presence of God there to say, as long as God is center, that's where I will get the source of my life from. The New Testament says the same thing. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which belong to God. I want God to have his place in my life. The central place that was always his. I want him to come back and to live out his life through my life, through my dedication. The Ark of the Covenant was symbolic of God's presence. But friends, in the New Testament, it is not symbols. 
The scripture says that when we believe, God sent his Holy Spirit to abide in us forever so that we can cry, Abba, Father. That's the privilege we have of God's dwelling when we surrender to him. Not a temple, not a building, but our own lives. We want God to have his rightful place in our lives. We used to sing a song. We don't sing it anymore. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. And on a scale of one to seven, how is your worship? How is my worship? We come to the report. To the report of the resolution. That is what 6 to 10 is talking about. We're not sure. Scholars are not sure whether it is God speaking or whether the, the psalm is speaking. But what is being said here is we have heard, in other words, it's been spreading around. God is back in his place. God is recognized by those people. If, if, you, if you go there, you are going to see joy like you have never seen it before. Because God has taken up his place as the central being in the Jewish life. We have heard. It is spreading around. Listen to 1 Thessalonians. Listen. You remember how you set yourselves to become a copy of us. And through us, Christ himself. You remember how although accepting the, the message meant bitter persecution, yet you experienced the joy of the Holy Spirit. You became examples to all who believe in Macedonia and Achaia. You have become a sort of a sounding board from which the word of the Lord has rung out not only in Macedonia, but everywhere the story is told of how you became truly connected to God. Oh, dear friends, I tell you, I read that, and I, I, began, I, I began to get excited. Because when you leave this place, if God is the center of who you are, the reports will be going to wherever you go tomorrow, to wherever you go today, to whoever you speak with. You, don't, you, you might not even have to, to speak about the fact that you've been to church there will be something of your countenance that will say, how are you so excited today? What's driving you today? What is so important to you? And you will answer, my friends, it is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in my eyes. It is marvelous. My friends, if, listen, if Jesus Christ did not mean much to me, I'm going to tell you I would not be here this morning. I wouldn't be a Christian. But I can find no reason from the first moment I trusted Christ as Savior, I can find no reason not to believe Him and not to speak of Him. I can find no reason. On a scale of 1 to 7, where are you in your devotion? Where am I in my devotion and my dedication to God?
verses 11 to 18, is the future. It's yet to take place. God made a promise to David in 1 Samuel 7 and 2 Samuel. And the promise was that he was going to have someone sit on his throne until the end times. Now David is dead. So, so who is going to sit on the throne? Would you listen to this? The angel came to Mary and said, The Lord is with you. Greetings, favorite one. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greetings this may be. And the angel said to her, Mary, don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Please listen now. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We, my friends, as you and I sit here, we are a part of the process of God's movement in history toward the second coming of Jesus Christ, and when he comes, He's going to fulfill the second part of Psalm 132. Listen to how it ends. The Lord has sworn to David a truth which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant, note the word if, because God knew that they were going to fail. But God was going to have his seed running where he was going to be able to keep his promise to David. Verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Verse 17, therefore... I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will be clothed with shame, but upon his crown, but upon himself his crown shall shine. God is saying this, friends, that Jesus Christ is going to be the one who fulfills all the promises that God gave to David. And one of the promises had to do with the resurrection of Christ the ascension of Christ, the reign of Christ, and the coming again of Christ. That's where you and I are part of God's procession. And let us put God in his rightful place that you and I can be called servants for the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh God. Oh, make us servants, Lord. Help us not to be afraid to commit to you totally, fully, our lives. Help us not afraid, Lord, to want to hold on to our possessions, to our properties, to our families, at the expense of denying God. I pray that when we surrender them all to you, you give them back to us in abundance. 
And I pray that this word will have significance for some heart here this morning. May the Holy Spirit complete what he has started in the exposition of this psalm this morning. In Jesus' name.